Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a surprise deal Senator Schumer struck with Senator Manchin to include $369 billion for climate and energy programs along with tax increases on corporations in a package to subsidize health care and lower the cost of prescription drugs. Joining us is Tyson Slocum, the Research Director for Public Citizens Energy Program, where he works to promote stronger regulation of energy markets, examine the impact of mergers and lax regulations over electricity, petroleum and natural gas, and monitor federal legislation on energy issues. He conducts extensive research on the influence of corporate special interests on our political system and works to promote corporate and government accountability, and we'll examine the proposed investments in solar, wind, batteries, electric vehicles, addressing pollution in low-income communities, and cutting emissions in the agricultural sector. Then, with both President Biden and Treasury Secretary Yellen in TV appearances today talking down the threat of recession while talking up the economy, we will explore how the Fed, in raising interest rates yesterday to fight inflation, which is their top concern while everyone else is worried about recession, is in fact, by its actions, making a recession more likely. Joining us is Robert Hockett who has first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state and local legislatures and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy. He is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University, and his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. Then finally, we'll investigate the backlash to the Hungarian autocrat Orban's recent speech in Romania, where he used the word Farge in talking about keeping out people of mixed race, which is the word the Hungarian Nazi party, the Arrow Cross Party, used to call Jews as a lesser species. This prompted a long-time advisor of Orbán's to quit calling Orbán's speech, quote, pure Nazi text worthy of Goebbels. But it has not stopped CPAC from hosting Orbán next week in Dallas on stage with Trump. Joining us is Kim Lane Shepley, a professor of international affairs at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. From 1994 to 1998, she lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching at both the University of Budapest and at Central European University. And after 1989, she studied the emergence of constitutional law in Hungary and Russia, living in both places for extended periods. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Tyson Slocum, who is the Research Director for Public Citizens Energy Program, where he works to promote stronger regulation 
of energy markets, examine the impact of mergers and lax regulations over electricity, petroleum and natural gas, and monitors federal legislation on energy issues. He conducts extensive research on the influence of corporate special interests on our political system and works to promote corporate and government accountability. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tyson Slogan. Always great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Tyson. And there's a surprise deal that was made between Chuck Schumer and Senator Manchin, which in terms of climate action, uh, it's a, there's a $369 billion climate and tax package that they put together, and they'll vote on it very soon through reconciliation, apparently, unless Senator Sinema scuttles it. Originally, in Build Back Better, they, the goal was $555 billion in climate spending. So that's not too bad, is it, compared to the earlier hopes that they were dashed in Build Back Better? Yeah, I would, I would say on balance, this is actually very good for the climate and for clean energy. There's just hundreds of billions of dollars in there in terms of uh, federal financial incentives for renewable energy and for other zero or near zero emission uh, technologies. There is uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in funding for frontline and environmental justice communities. Um, uh, So there's a methane fee that will uh, punish natural gas and oil companies for um, uh, allowing excess methane seepage out of their oil and gas operations, and that's a revenue raising provision. There are some problematic aspects of the bill. Uh, It uh, seeks to expand uh, leases for oil and gas drilling in certain parts of the Gulf of Mexico, and it also ties expansion of offshore and onshore wind and solar resources in federal uh, land and water, uh, it ties that to expansion of oil and gas leasing, which is obviously very problematic. Uh, But on balance, this is a very good piece of legislation that is going to inject a lot of federal spending on clean energy and climate resilience uh, initiatives. And so on balance, this it's not a perfect bill. It's a, it's a product of the, of the you know, legislative process, but on balance, this is a big net positive in, in my opinion for clean energy and for uh, action on climate. Well, it's aimed at, you know, these incentives to, to ramp up wind, solar, geothermal, battery, and other clean energy industries over the next decade. It also um, gives tax benefits or tax credits to people to buy electric cars. I think only if they're made in the US, I'm not sure on that, but it's $7,500 tax credits to purchase a new electric vehicle and $4,000 tax credit to purchase a used one. So that's very welcome. Is the industry able to meet the demand? Because Teslas are a little expensive for the average folks. But, I mean, I guess the big three are really moving pretty fast on electric vehicles, aren't they? Yeah, we're seeing definitely a massive increase in commitment of investment and uh, electric vehicle uh, production by uh, manufacturers outside of Tesla. 
Tesla obviously dominates the U.S. market, um, but there's a backlog. It's very difficult for uh, a lot of folks to, you know, buy an, a new EV. So I think it's very important that it includes these tax breaks for used uh, uh, electric vehicles because, you know, there's a lot of working families out there that have never been able to afford to buy a new car in their life, uh, let alone an electric vehicle. And so preserving that for the used car market is important. You know, there's not a whole lot in here for mass transit. Some of that was addressed in last year's infrastructure bill, which did provide billions of dollars uh, for mass transit initiatives, but it's still not enough. And, you know, as much as it's important to promote electric vehicles to replace uh, uh, internal combustion engine, gasoline-powered cars. At the end of the day, we to solve the challenges of our transportation system, uh, the the only major solution to quickly decarbonize in sustainable ways is through the investment in mass transit. And so we we need to re you know redouble our efforts. Uh, but there's a lot in this bill that's good. If, if we're going to electrify the, tra the transportation sector, you have to start by quickly decarbonizing the electric power sector, right? Because if you're going to move our transport system away from oil and to be electric based, then we got to make darn sure that our electricity system is, is as close to 100% renewables as possible. And, and this bill is going to do an awful lot to uh, make it easier and cheaper to get more and more renewables onto the grid, which is which is the key. And that's pretty surprising, isn't it, uh, given uh, what has appeared to be Joe Manchin's resistance because he's in a, a coal state of West Virginia and he's a, his own family are in the coal business. So have we been unfair to Joe Manchin? What do you think? No, I don't think we've been unfair to Joe Manchin. I think he deserves all of the attacks that he's gotten for holding up this process and taking so long. But that said, you know, trust me, Joe Manchin did just fine uh, extracting a lot of stuff for his fossil fuel interests. Like I said, he's got big commitments for expanded oil and gas leasing in, in federal lands and waters. He's got this absurd provision that directly ties increased uh, renewable deployment on federal lands and waters to increased oil and gas uh, uh, leasing activity. Um, uh, so, you know, he's gotten a lot of goodies in there for, for his interests. Um, but at the end of the day, we've got, you know, billions and billions of dollars for clean energy investment, uh, which is going to be very important. You know, it also includes tax breaks for carbon capture and storage, which is a very controversial and absurdly expensive procedure to try and capture and reuse or store carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, and so there's big tax credits for that. It's unclear as to whether or not those tax credits are ever going to be realized because the technology has so many significant problems. There's also billions in there in tax breaks for existing nuclear power plants to keep older nuclear power plants chugging along. Uh, and, you know, in the climate community, uh, there's some controversy around that because uh, of the significant legacy nuclear waste issues involved with nuclear power. 
And again, I'm speaking with Tyson Slocum, who is the Research Director for Public Citizens Energy Program, where he works to promote stronger regulation of energy markets, examine the impact of mergers and lax regulation over electricity, petroleum and natural gas, and monitor federal legislation on energy issues. And he conducts extensive research on the influence of corporate special interests on our political system and works to promote corporate and government accountability. So... Obviously, power plants are a stationary source. They're very identifiable. And I think, what are they? I don't know what percentage they are. I think automobile pollution in terms of global warming is what? Is that 60%? And power generation is around 40%. What What are the figures? It's, it's about that. I, I actually don't know offhand, but several years ago, greenhouse gas emissions from the U.S. transportation sector exceeded those from the electric power sector for the first time since 1978. So we have seen pretty good decarbonization in the electric power sector. It needs to be a lot quicker and we need to see a lot more renewable deployment. But the transportation sector continues to be stubbornly dominated by fossil fuels. And so that's the big challenge. And like I said, it's got uh, good tax breaks for electric vehicles, and it includes tax breaks for used vehicles, but that's not going to be enough. We've got to invest in mass transit um, uh, if if we're really going to tackle the challenges with our transportation sector. And um, the Republicans, of course, are not offering anything except resistance. And in fact, it looks like the only way this deal was done was that Senator McConnell was threatening not to go ahead with the CHIPS Act to give $52 billion to American chip manufacturers to bring them up to speed to challenge China's domination. And uh, he threatened if they wanted to do another bill back better, he was going to uh, not going to go ahead with that bill. But then the minute they signed that bill, out pops this deal with Schumer and, and Manchin. But just to give you an example of the attitude of the Republicans, Senator John Barrasso from Wyoming says it's nothing short of an attack on the American family. If we want to reduce inflation, lower energy costs and cut the deficit, the recipe is clear. Congress should cut spending and unleash American oil and gas production. So there you have it. So mean, that's, this is, this is, that's, uh, that's completely ridiculous. Right now, no country on earth produces more oil or natural gas than the United States. We already are literally the biggest oil and natural gas producer. And on top of that, Ian, no other country on earth exports more oil and natural gas every day than we do. We export and produce more than Saudi Arabia, Russia, all these other countries. So that's not what's driving inflation right now is the fact that oil and natural gas, despite our record production and record exports, prices for fossil fuel energy remain stubbornly high. What is not stubbornly high is the cost of electricity produced from renewable resources. Because unlike gas and oil, the fuel cost for wind and solar is $0. So if you want to address inflation, you address inflation by replacing overly expensive and volatilely priced fossil fuels with zero dollar fuel priced renewable energy. 
So Republicans continue to be completely disingenuous on this inflation claim. Inflation is being driven today by spiking fossil fuel energy prices, not renewable energy. Renewable energy is your hedge against expensive fossil fuels. Renewable energy drives down electricity prices. And so it's really important that we stick to the facts here. And the facts are a renewable energy transition will combat inflation by lowering energy costs for American families. And how far do you think this new bill goes in terms of this much-needed transition? Well, I, I think it's it's going to play a very big role. Like I said, it's going to make it even cheaper to finance and build new renewable energy. And by making it even cheaper uh, and easier to finance, that means you're going to uh, expand the deployment uh, of renewable energy. And that's what we need right now. We need to accelerate this transition beyond just what the simple market uh, forces are doing and accelerate the deployment of renewables. And so, you know, they're claiming it's going to reduce emissions by 40 percent by by 2030. It looks like that claim is legitimate. And so that's a great start. Uh, we've got to do more. Like I said, we've got to have uh, a bigger companion infrastructure investments. But Ian, this is an important uh, start. It's probably the largest climate-related piece of legislation that Congress has uh, ever uh, uh, potentially passed. Again, it hasn't passed yet, but uh, I, I think chances are very good that it's going to pass very soon. And I think that that this is an important achievement that uh, that should be built upon for additional uh, investments and reforms. So along with the 30 billion for solar production panels and wind turbines and batteries, there's, in fact, President Biden in his speech today did mention the South Korean company uh, Qcells that are building a $171 million assembly factory in, down in Georgia. And he talked about how many jobs that that was going to create. Uh, but there's also $60 billion to address the disproportionate burden of pollution on in uh, low-income communities and communities of color, and $27 billion for a green bank, which is supposed to deliver financial support to clean energy projects, and $20 billion for programs to cut emissions in the agriculture sector, where, of course, methane is produced enormously in that sector. So it seems to be across the board. This seems fairly beyond being helpful. This is a, a real step towards the much-needed transition to clean energy. Uh, absolutely. This, I, I think, if you're concerned about the climate, you should be very happy today. Uh, and I think it's important to you know, let your lawmakers know uh, that getting this bill to the president's desk needs to be a priority. It's not there yet. We've unveiled a political path forward to getting this through the United States Senate, and that's important. So it's important for uh, for listeners out there to you know contact their senators, contact your your representative, and uh, you know demand that they support this legislation. It's a it's a great uh, addition to the arsenal that's needed to combat climate change. And just in closing, then uh, Tyson, I imagine this will help the U.S. position globally, right? Uh, 
under Trump, of course, things not only were they frozen, they went backwards. You know, he tore up as many agreements as he could get his hands on. So the U.S. reputation was pretty much shattered as a global leader in dealing with the enormous challenge that the planet faces from global warming. So will this help, do you think, restore America's credibility? Definitely. You know, in order for the United States to be taken seriously on the global stage as we negotiate with other countries about global agreements to combat climate change, which is essential because global climate change is global in nature and requires a global solution. But the only way we have legitimacy is if we actually have a domestic plan to combat emissions within our own borders. And this legislation, if it gets to Biden's desk, it gives the administration that legitimacy. So John Kerry and the rest of the diplomatic team can go to the rest of the world and say, listen, we now have passed the legislation to more quickly put the U.S. on a path towards decarbonization, to hit our emission reduction goals. Now let's negotiate with the rest of the world on you know, further commitments that the world can take to reduce emissions. So uh, it's really important for credibility uh, on climate leadership to show that you're taking care of your own backyard, and and this legislation is going to help the U.S. do that. Well, Tyson Slocum, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Always my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Tyson Slocum, who's the Research Director for Public Citizens Energy Program, where he works to promote stronger regulation of energy markets, examine the impact of mergers and lax regulations over electricity, petroleum and natural gas, and monitor federal legislation on energy issues. He conducts extensive research on the influence of corporate special interests on our political system and works to promote corporate and government accountability. We can take a brief station break. We're back looking at how the Fed in raising interest rates yesterday to fight inflation, which is their top concern while everybody else is worried about recession, is in fact, by its actions, making a recession more likely. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Hockett, who has had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and continues to consult for a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislatures and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexander Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policies, and is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. His latest books are The Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Hockett. Thanks so much, Ian. Great to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And the last couple of days have been full of economic news and economic shocks, and depending on how you see it, of course, today 
the Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and President Biden were talking up the economy and saying, no, 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 there's no recession. The Republicans, of course, are invested in the recession and that the sky is falling. They're also invested in uh, in inflation, which about which they're doing nothing, uh, but hoping that uh, it'll get them back into the White House and uh, into controlling the House and Senate. So let's sort of navigate this if we can. It would seem to me that Wednesday's Federal Reserve action of raising the, the interest rates by three-quarters of a point, I mean, in other words, the Fed seems to be focused on inflation when nearly everybody else is worried about recession. And what they're doing about inflation is increasing the likelihood of a recession. Is, is that it in a nutshell? I think that is it in a nutshell, Ian. Uh, it's effectively a kind of killing of the patient, uh, from my point of view. Um, they think of it as sort of hard medicine. Uh, that's a phrase that was actually used about policies of this kind back during the Herbert Hoover years. <laughs> so we seem to be back to the uh, the 19, uh, late 20s, early 30s. Um, there's a kind of a backstory here uh, that I think might be sort of helpful for the listeners to, to, to hear. Um, you probably noticed a few weeks back that Larry Summers was so, you know, sort of exercised about inflation that he said, oh, it's going to be necessary essentially for the Fed to engineer a recession uh, and to engineer essentially a much higher unemployment rate. He said that we need about 10% unemployment for a year uh, or 6.5 to 7% unemployment for a few years uh, or over 5% unemployment for five years in order to get employment under wraps. Now, the logic there is, all right, I guess we have to make it impossible for people to buy things in order for prices to come down. And the best way to make people unable to buy things is to take their jobs away, to sort of slam on the brakes, slow down the economy, throw it into negative growth, and then uh, we'll solve the problem. Now, in my view, what's particularly horrifying about that is not just the sort of cavalier attitude toward people and their jobs and their livelihoods and the like, but also it's a sort of bizarre intellectual blunder. You've heard the phrase before, I'm sure, that inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. That suggests that there are two variables to consider, the too few goods and the too much money. That suggests in turn that you might approach the inflation problem or close that gap, so to speak, between money supplies and good supplies from either or both of two directions, right? You might increase the good supplies or decrease the money supply or try to do a bit of both. The problem is that contemporary economists, notably Larry Summers, but also most of his peers, have sort of forgotten about the very idea of production, right? They spent 40 or 50 years, in fact, offshoring US productive capacity, offshoring American jobs, offshoring American industry and so forth abroad in order to pursue cheaper labor costs uh, for the people who own those companies that benefited by these globalization policies. And now the U.S. doesn't have nearly the, the productive capacities that it once had. And so they can't even think in terms of addressing the inflation problem from the supply or the production side. And so instead, they look at it only from the money side. And you know the old saying, if all you've got is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. All they've got, it seems, in their conceptual apparatus these days is the hammer known as unemployment, as you know, recession. So that's what they're doing. Uh, they're essentially trying to engineer a recession uh, in order to bring prices down. Well, given the GDP numbers that came out today, how the GDP declined 0.9%, they're succeeding, right? Yeah, 
yeah, they are succeeding. There's a slowing down uh, very much underway. Um, the forecasts for inflation in the near future are now coming down. Housing prices are beginning to come down. Gas prices are down, down below $4 a gallon again for the first time in, in months. Um, all of these are indicators not of changing supplies, but of sort of changing expectations. Uh, the, the expectation is that the economy is going to be thrown into recession. And so lo and behold, uh, price rises are slowing and price um, uh, falling is commencing. And it's hardly a surprise that uh, housing construction is falling because yep. the interest rates are, are rising, right? And yeah. people are being shut out of houses. So, you know, people have been saving to get out of apartments to buy homes and now they're stuck yeah yeah it's um it, it's a sort of a little known fact i think or at least a little remarked fact of uh, contemporary american finance that uh, housing finance is one of the primary channels through which fed monetary policy works uh, nowadays so if you can sort of engineer a drop uh, in housing values or if you can engineer a drop in housing demand, um, you can, you know, basically get a lot of recessionary bang for the buck, so to speak. Um, and that's another thing that we're seeing uh, beginning right now. It's a shame, too, because, again, uh, we could have and we still could, in fact, address the problem from the supply or from the production side. And to do that would be a way that wouldn't require us then effectively to reverse the very historically unusual and salutary and welcome gains uh, to labor bargaining power and to wages that we've seen in the last few years. Um, you know, this is, uh, it's been 50 plus years uh, since the last time that labor had the kind of bargaining power and the kind of wage rises that we saw beginning uh, over the last couple of years. And Biden could then, you know, have legitimately claimed that a significant recovery is underway, not just with respect or in comparison to uh, the recent pandemic, but even in sort of historical terms. And unfortunately, Biden has sort of, you know, seems to have kind of acquiesced uh, to this strange notion that the only way to deal with inflation is to, again, kill the patient, to throw people out of work and has sort of outsourced, you might say, um, the matter of American economic policy to the Fed, <laughs> which last I checked is not particularly solicitous of the interests of working people. So in terms of the dueling narratives over a recession, where today both Secretary Treasury Yellen and President Biden did press conferences, well, actually Biden didn't take any questions, but they went on TV to say, no, we're not having a recession. And they're talking up the good aspects, which, you know, you've just pointed out some of them. The traditional de definition of a recession is what GDP dropping in two consecutive, two consecutive quarters, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, there, there are various definitions or indicators or things that people sort of look to to determine whether there's uh, something recessionary uh, underway. The conventional sort of shorthand definition that most people use, at least as a kind of prima facie indicator, is the two consecutive quarters of negative growth. And that we've just gotten confirmed today. The news just came out, as you noted. Um, and so by that definition, yeah, it's a recession. Uh, on the other hand, um, the Biden administration is sort of keen to kind of point to the silver linings and uh, which are not irrelevant. They are indeed relevant to the question of whether there's a recession on the one hand and how severe it might be on the other hand. And they do have some legitimate silver linings they can point to. And that is that you know, the unemployment rate is still historically quite low. Job openings, um, announcements of new job openings are still robust uh, and rising. 
uh, household balance sheets, that's to say savings of many households are still in positive territory rather than the negative territory that they had been in for many, many years. Um, those are all, you know, sort of signs of health and also sources of health. Um, and they do warrant um, at least a somewhat less dark, cloudy, gloomy, pessimistic view than we might otherwise be entertaining. But that being said, um, it is, of course, nevertheless undeniable that by the primary definition, shorthand definition of recession that people use, we are now officially in recession. And again, I'm speaking with Robert Hockett, who's had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy and is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. And his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. So let's talk a little about the good news, albeit surprising news as well, that is that Chuck Schumer has made a deal with Senator Manchin, Senator Hickenlooper apparently has been also involved in negotiating this for some time. It happened, of course, right after the CHIPS Act was passed in the Senate, and that is $52 billion for American chip manufacturers to, you know, to get us independent of Chinese supplies, etc. Biden talked to Xi Jinping today about it. Apparently, the Chinese are not happy about this CHIPS Act, and obviously tensions over Taiwan. But obviously what happened there was that the minority leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, said if you tried to do a bill back better or even a smaller version of it, I won't have you pass uh, the CHIPS Act. But so the minute the CHIPS Act got passed, boom, this thing comes out of nowhere. And uh, and it's not too bad. But let's talk, uh, and we talked earlier about the green side of it, and there's quite a bit of money in there, $369 billion, uh, You know, that's less than the $555 billion that was in the earlier Build Back Better's, but still not too bad. But let's talk a little bit about the bone, another bone they threw to Manchin, which is, you know, his obsession with inflation. The corporate tax, 15% minimum corporate tax, and Biden talked it up as well. That's something that Yellen's wanted because it's tied into a global pact so that everybody's on a level playing field. So give us your impressions of that and how much revenue that's going to generate forcing. And Biden, by the way, said today that of the 500, uh, Fortune 500 biggest companies in this country, over 50 of them pay no taxes whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. So a few thoughts on, on that. Ian. I mean, the first, the kind of low hanging fruit here is to say that, remember, we were noting, I was noting a rattling off before a number of reasons to expect the inflation rates to start coming down and how there's certain indicators out there that sort of suggest that inflation is coming down. We might view this, too, as another such indicator, right? The fact that uh, Manchin has finally sort of signed on or at least appears to be signing on at this point is perhaps another indicator that inflationary pressures um, can be are, are widely expected to be sort of on the wane because otherwise uh, Manchin would presumably still be you know sort of dragging his feet on on, on all this um, you know sort of turning from sort of superficial significances of, of, of that sort to sort of uh, 
deeper or heavier significances. Um, it is, I think, very important um, that we do have uh, agreement, apparently, uh, in the Senate, or at least on the part of enough uh, voting members of the Senate, uh, to secure uh, this uh, international uh, tax uh, pact or agreement or accession to this particular uh, international tax pact. It's, it's important not just for the amount of tax revenue that it might now enable us to generate, but also in that it sort of establishes now a kind of a framework and a precedent for global coordination on corporate taxation. As you know, uh, multinational corporations have been playing a kind of divide and conquer strategy in their approaches to various national authorities, quite analogous uh, to you know, the ways in which they pit states in the US against one another in order to secure the best sort of sweetheart deals for themselves. In effect, they exploit a collective action problem on the part of many sovereigns or semi-sovereigns like the US states in order to sort of drive a so-called race to the bottom. And if we can get in place then some kind of a framework and again, some sort of a, a longer standing uh, habit or, or, or precedent of nations coordinating their tax policy together, that's going to enable nations to stand firm together for one thing in order to prevent from, you know, prevent being exploited or extorted by, uh, by large multinational corporations. Another reason that it's quite important, uh, of course, is that currently it's very easy for a multinational corporation, even one that purports to be a U.S. company, for example, uh, to sort of claim uh, that they do most of their production offshore somewhere, simply through accounting tricks, and thereby avoid uh, paying taxes because they here in the US because they just play, pay the lower rate um, that is applicable in the country where they're claiming they did their producing through their accounting tricks. That mm -hmm. kind of evasion is no longer going to be possible uh, thanks to this. So my thought is that we're going to see additional revenue generated for one thing, as you just suggested, but also we now have in place a mechanism by which to sort of prevent evasion of a kind that's been quite common for many decades now to, to be closed, to be ended. So in addition though, to the 15% corporate minimum tax, you know, you, and Apple's a good example of, of what you just said because they're headquartered in Ireland, right, for accounting reasons. Um, so, but the other thing that I think is encouraging is that there's money in in the bill, this latest uh, Mansion Schumer bill that's going to go through reconciliation. And apparently, they're going to try and get it done by the end of next week. So that's pretty amazing if they can pull it off. And again, we don't know whether Senator Sinema is going to scuttle the whole thing because she's totally in the pocket of corporate America and big money. But we'll see. But the long and the short of it is that the IRS is going to get some money, which, you know, the Republicans have just consistently defunded the IRS so that their friends don't have to pay taxes, the billionaires and millionaires uh, who they serve so assiduously. So that's pretty good, isn't it, that the IRS is going to have some enforcement authority now. Yeah, this is another another bit of good news, right? I mean, it's 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 funny. I mean, Republicans have been very, um, you know, it's it's, it's if you were a, a, a drug dealer, uh, let's say, an illegal drug dealer, uh, and you couldn't bring about a legalization of dealing heroin, heroin or whatever. 
The next best thing would be if you could get the drug enforcement agency or the police forces altogether deprived of any any sort of financing at all so they basically couldn't enforce the law anymore. And that's essentially what the Republicans do, right, is in addition to sort of constantly bringing about tax cuts through legislation, the, the most egregious recent example being the so-called Trump tax cuts of December 2017, next best thing after that or the best way to supplement that is to essentially to gut um, you know, the IRS itself so that it can't actually audit you or enforce the law against you. So the fact that uh, we're at least to some extent, to a modest degree, reversing that sort of long-term trend of defunding uh, the IRS is an, another you know, piece of good news here. Uh, and it's also, I think, a piece of good news in the sense that if we are going to address uh, the budget deficit partly on the revenue side by dealing with, you know, basically by raising taxes or increasing the tax take. It's kind of nice to see that happening, you know, at the upper, you know, in the upper brackets for a change, right? Um, both in the case of the corporate tax and in the case of the enforcement capacities that the, the IRS will be able to renew now in going after uh, those those corporations and other sort of high end evaders of, of, of the tax liabilities. And again, and again, of course, today, President Biden emphasized that there are no tax raises, as he promised many times, uh, people earning under $400,000. So he's sticking to that. So we'll see what happens with cinema. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you certainly pegged her perfectly a moment ago. And, and that is uh, that is the worry now. But I suppose it's possible that she might feel a little bit more pressure to sort of, you know, play ball now that Manchin, who was kind of the poster child for this form of foot dragging, uh, appears thus far <laughs> to, <laughs> to be playing ball again. Well, Robert, how can I thank you so much for joining us here today? Oh, of course, Ian. Thank you so much. Always great to be with you. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Hockett, who's had first-hand experience working at the International Monetary Fund and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and he continues to consult to a number of U.S. federal, state, and local legislators and regulators. He drafted Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Green New Deal resolution for the House of Representatives and officially advises her on economic policy, and is the Edward Cornell Professor of Law and a Professor of Public Policy at Cornell University. And his latest books are Money from Nothing or Why We Should Stop Worrying About Debt and Learn to Love the Federal Reserve, Financing the Green New Deal, a Plan of Action and Renewal, and The Citizen's Ledger, Digitizing Our Money, Democratizing Our Finance. We're going to take a brief station break and back investigating the backlash to the Hungarian autocrat Orban's recent speech in Hungary, where he used the word that the Hungarian Nazi Party used to describe Jews as a lesser species. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Kim Lane Shepley, who's a Professor of Sociology and International Affairs at the University Centre for Human Values at Princeton University. And from 1994 to 1998, she lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching at both the University of Budapest and at Central European University. And after 1989, she studied the emergence of constitutional law in Hungary and Russia, living in both places for extended periods. And she's the author of The International State of Emergency, The Rise of Global Security Law, and 9-11 and the Rise of Anti-Terrorism Law, How the UN Security Council Rules the World. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kim Lane Shepley. Nice to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Kim. And Viktor Orban, as you know well, has always been anti-immigrant, and I don't know exactly the extent to which he's always been a racist, but he did tip his hand uh, at a speech last Saturday in Romania, which has been condemned by the Romania's foreign minister. And one of his top aides and advisors who'd worked with him for over 20 years, she quit in disgust, saying that his speech, Orban's speech, was a pure Nazi text worthy of Goebbels. So what's the situation in the backlash in Hungary itself? I mean... Uh, Obviously, there's been a lot of outrage, but it hasn't stopped CPAC, uh, the, the conservative organization. They haven't disinvited uh, Orban, who's going to be speaking at a CPAC conference in Dallas next week. Yeah, well, so first of all, let me say something about the speech and the context of what Orban actually said, because I think there's a lot of confusion about that. So first of all, Orban has always been anti-immigration. He has always said Hungary for the Hungarians, Hungary first. He's made lots of statements of that kind. And in fact, the statements that he made last weekend were not all that different from statements that he has made repeatedly over the last seven or eight years. Um, So what set everybody off last weekend? Well, what set everybody off last weekend was the terminology he used in Hungarian. So in the past, when he's talked about not wanting other groups to come to Hungary, um, he's used either the word group or the word other religions or he's used the word nemzet, which in Hungarian means like ethnicity, as in like nation or nation state. Um, last weekend, he used a different word, and he used the Hungarian word fai. And the word fai means something like race or species, as in like people and monkeys would be different species, would be different fai. And the word fai has this history because it was used in the 1930s and 40s by the Hungarian Cross Party, which was the Hungarian Nazi Party, to describe Jews, you know, as being fundamentally of a different species than Hungarians. So when Orban used this word "fai," it actually was Nazi language, <laughs> and it shocked people because Orban hadn't really done that before. So that's what accounts for this huge, you know, uprising. But if you just read the speech in English, you won't actually see what the issue is. It really has to do with this echoing of Nazi language. So so that's why we're in this situation. So what does that mean? Well, and why does Orban do that now? Well, I think Orban is doing that now for two reasons. You know, one has to do with exactly the fact that he's coming to the U.S. next week to talk to CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Committee, and Orban's been promised a space sort of on the platform with Donald Trump. And Orban is well-read. He understands, you know, politics in other places. And I'm sure he understands that some of Trump's base are white supremacists who would love that kind of language. So in using that language in Hungary, he may have been actually trying to signal 
to Trump's base in the U.S. like I'm one of you guys, you know. So that's one. The second thing is that in Hungary, Orban's government is currently going bankrupt. There's a long story behind that. I can elaborate if you want. But basically, they are in desperate need of cash. And one of the reasons why they're in desperate need of cash is because the European Union usually gives them a giant pile of cash. And the European Union has not distributed this cash yet. And it may not distribute this cash because there's now a new law in the EU that allows the EU to cut funds to member states that are hugely corrupt and can't spend this money properly. And Hungary is nothing if not deeply corrupt. So there's a good chance that Orban is not going to get this money. And that decision is going to be made very soon. So by whipping up this, this you know, anger of Europe against Hungary, what Orban is doing is also playing to his own base at home. Because that way he can say the reason why the EU is not giving us money is that we're not politically correct. And we are critical of of Europe's cosmopolitanism, and we are not cosmopolitan, and therefore they won't give us money. As opposed to, we don't have a democracy anymore, and we're a massively corrupt dictatorship, which is why they won't give us the money. So this language and upping the ante here has a couple of, I think, different agendas. But again, Kim, how's it playing in Hungary, given that he dominates the media because he controls the media, and that's why the opposition didn't have a chance in the last election? And that's what the Republicans are modelling on. They're, they're modelling a one-party state based upon what he's done in Hungary. So is there outrage in Hungary about using this Nazi term? Or is it just that he's signalling this dog whistle to the Hungarian public to, as you point out, to make excuses for the fact that they're cutting off money and they're beating, beating up on us because I'm not politically correct? Yeah, well, so on one hand, the I mean, yes, there's an outrage in Hungary, and it's true that this longstanding advisor of Orban's quit. The woman who quit um, is a Jewish descendant of Holocaust survivors, which is why, A, it was surprising she worked with Orban in the first place, but B, not at all surprising that she would react to this use of Nazi language. And while it's true that Orban controls virtually all the television, virtually all the radio, and most of the print media, there still are some news outlets that he doesn't control, one of which is a news magazine called Havege, which is kind of modeled on the the Economist uh, magazine. And it was there that this advisor chose to publish her letter. So it got out. Orban actually made a response saying, dear Zsuzsa, you know, his advisor, Zsuzsa means Susan in Hungarian, you know me better than that, and you know that I'm not a racist, at which point she wrote back to him and used that quotation that you read at the beginning about how he sounds like Goebbels, right? So this, the fact that that got out in public has generated both a lot of international attention and it's generated more domestic attention. So Hungarians, I think, were not getting all that excited about it because Orban says stuff like this all the time. What is getting Hungarians excited is the fact that the rest of the world is now excited about it. And suddenly there are now a lot of articles, even in the Orban press, which are about, once again, the world accuses us unfairly. They don't understand us and all that kind of stuff. So it's gotten too big a reaction for, the, for Hungarians to ignore. And that means that more people are paying attention to it in Hungary than otherwise would probably do so. 
Right, but is it having the right effect? Are the Hungarian people learning the right lesson, which is that their leader is a, a racist neo-Nazi? Or is, there just, is the country yeah. just hopelessly right-wing? And I mean, it was pretty pro-Nazi during the war, was it not? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course. So, you know, Hungary passed the first anti-Semitic laws in Europe in 19... Well, recent anti-Semitic laws in Europe in 1920, you know, limiting the number of Jews in the professions. They were 10 years ahead of Nazi Germany in terms of creating a structure for marginalizing Jews, particularly well-educated Jews in, in public life. So, yes, absolutely, in the 30s and 40s, Hungary was, um, you know, Nazi Germany ahead of Nazi Germany. And Hungary, of course, joined the war on the side of Nazi Germany and lost the war with Nazi Germany. So, you know, yes, Hungary has this history and Hungary has been able to rather successfully offload all the blame for the Holocaust to the Germans who were, you know, uh, eager to accept the blame for all of it because they really did have a reckoning with their past. And the Hungarians who haven't reckoned as much with their past are being told, especially in all these textbooks that Orban has rewritten over the last 10 years, that really, you know, yes, we had a little bit of anti-Semitism, but really massive things like the Holocaust are really the Germans' fault, and we never would have done that, you know, the end. So the Hungarians haven't really come to grips with their own history in this regard, and therefore... It's not the same thing as if you mention something like this in Germany, you know, where there's a clear history where everybody understands what happens and they understand German responsibility. There's no such history of Hungarians taking responsibility for the anti-Semitism of the 20s and 30s. And of course, well before that, but in the modern period in the 20s and 30s. And then, of course, you know, in the war and later, all of that said, you know, Orban himself, this is no defense of Orban, what I'm about to say, but the guy is probably not a racist and he's probably not a Nazi. He's an opportunist. You know, he will say whatever he thinks will gain him advantage. And that's why I'm, I'm believing that he said this now for very specific reasons and not because his inner racism came out. You know, Orban's own personal history, you know, indicates that he has has just not um, acted on the basis of either anti-Semitic or racist ideas. Let me just give you one example. So at the same time that Orban was railing against, you know, all the Muslims coming in from the South during, you know, the migration crisis when lots of Syrians and Iraqis and Afghans and others were trying to find safety in Europe and Orban shut the door and, you know, made all these anti-Muslim speeches and so on. At the same time, his government had opened up a system where anybody in the world could buy permanent residency in Hungary. And 16,000 Chinese bought permanent residency in Hungary uh, and a number of wealthy Arabs from the Gulf states and a number of wealthy Russians and so on. About 20,000 people bought residency in Hungary under this plan that kicked back a ton of this money to Orban's friends and associates. So it was a massive get-rich-quick activity for Orban and his inner circle. It didn't bother them at the time that the people they were selling residence permits to were not Hungarian Christians, as Orban pretends to be defending in this speech, right? So Orban is not, I mean, he's an opportunist. He's a cynic, and he takes advantage of what will benefit him. And if he's well, saying this stuff, he thinks it benefits him. Well, isn't he, isn't he a kleptocrat? I mean, isn't, isn't, oh, isn't yeah. crony capitalism, <laughs> all the European Absolutely. agricultural subsidies, him and his friends' pocket, 
That's why the EU is fed up with him, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. So the EU has finally caught on to the fact that, you know, a lot of the EU money that goes to Hungary goes into the pocket of Orban's friends. And and basically, Orban's government is not really committed to much of an ideological program. Their main ideology is, you know, let's take public resources and put it in private pockets of our friends. That's what Orban's really committed to. So he'll cover it up with various kinds of ideological covers, depending on what he thinks the market would bear. You know, if Hungary were a cosmopolitan, um, you know, uh, well-educated country, he would have a different appeal, you know, because it really is opportunism, which doesn't make it less dangerous, by the way, I should say. It makes it more dangerous in a way, right, because he'll follow wherever he thinks, you know, his public or the various audiences he needs to appeal to, you know, will go. And so he's well aware that he's coming to CPAC, that Trump dog whistles racism more sincerely, I might add, you know, and that that's a lot of Trump's base. And the more Orban does that, and then particularly when he gets this international reaction, he can say, you see, this is these are the forces of political correctness at work. You understand these things, right? Wink, wink, nod, nod. Right. <laughs> that's what he's going to do at CPAC, I'm sure. So, you know, this is not about the inner Orban uncontrollably coming out. Orban is not Trump. You know, Trump's inner racism comes out all the time, right? But Orban is not a Trump. Orban is clever, he is strategic, and it's all about kleptocracy, as you say. So in the speech that he made in Romania, where he used the the Nazi term or the Hungarian Nazi term from Fasch, the uh, meaning species, where the Hungarian Nazi party, the Arrowcross party, referred to Jews as during the 1930s and 1940s. So in that speech, he also denounced the EU's commission for uh, trying to get a consensus on cutting natural gas consumption by 15% in anticipation of Russia limiting gas supplies, which is already happening. And he was a holdout again on that. So he, in the course of defending the pro-Putin position he has, he made a joke about the Germans uh, basically knowing a lot about gas, referring to the gas chambers. So not exactly... um, Yeah, well, so here's here's the problem. Um, Actually, by the way, what happened in the same week as the speech was that Mercedes agreed to put in, I think it was a 1 billion euro investment to Hungary to build Mercedes's in Hungary. Okay, so Hungary relies very heavily on German industry. And he also relied, I mean, the reason why Orban was able to come to power and consolidate his regime was that Angela Merkel appeased him. You know, basically, as long as Orban left the German, you know, in, you know, industries operating in Hungary alone, Merkel was willing to provide cover for him at EU level. So now there's a new government in charge. And in this new government, they put into their, you know, governing platform that they will suddenly take the rule of law seriously and you can see the change in Europe because the EU now is marching toward cutting Hungary's funds, which would never have happened while Merkel was there. So as a result, Orban thinks of the current German government as his enemy. You know, this current German government is going to starve him, you know, of all this EU, all these EU funds, which he badly needs to keep his government afloat, but also to keep lining the pockets of his friends. And so as a result, it's not surprising to me that these, you know, really horrible attacks on Germany kind of come out sideways in his speech because he really sees the Germans 
as, you know, really holding him to the mat now when he desperately needs funds. So that's what's going on. You know, he knows what's going to irk the Germans and provoke a guilt response, you know, and so there he says it. Well, just in closing, do you think that Mercedes is going to react and <laughs> no. go ahead? I mean, come <laughs> no. on. I mean, so here's the thing. I mean, we learned this in the Holocaust and we can learn it now, which is that industry is often protected by people with despicable views. Um, and we know that German industry went along with the Nazi period and German industry now will go along with an autocrat like Orban as long as they know that he's not going to attack you know, their conditions of work in Hungary. And in particular, the fact that Hungary has this highly educated, very inexpensive labor pool. And that's why all the German cars, you know, the Audis and the Mercedes and all the others are manufactured primarily in Hungary, also to some extent in Poland. And these companies don't care whether they're in a democracy or not. So, you know, one of the things I think we need to work on is thinking about the conscience of companies if we're trying to figure out, you know, how to protect democracy in places where it's really under threat. Well, Kim Lane Shepley, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you. Lovely to talk to you again. And again, I've been speaking with Kim Lane Shepley, who's a professor of sociology and international affairs at the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. And from 1994 to 1998, she lived in Budapest doing research at the Constitutional Court of Hungary and teaching at both the University of Budapest and at Central European University. And after 1989, she studied the emergence of constitutional law in Hungary and Russia, living in both places for extended periods, and is the author of The International State of Emergency, The Rise of Global Security Law, and 9-11, and the rise of global anti-terrorism law, how the UN Security Council rules the world. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.